Tanse, that's hello in Cree. Welcome to Catching Frogs. I'm Wendy Stewart. Thanks for joining me today. I'm grateful to the Canada Council for the Arts for their support of this project on my journey to reconnect with my Cree and Métis roots and to revisit the history of Canada through the lens of Indigenous women and their significant contribution. But none of this would be possible had it not been for the tireless commitment of Donna Sutherland, my second cousin, and the 10 years of her dedicated research. We begin. It was May 17, 2022. I climbed into my lime green Kia Soul and headed west for my, from my wee house in the woods near Falls Lake in Nova Scotia. I was beyond excited. I was headed to the remains of Fort Prince of Wales, where Nahaway was born circa 1772, at the mouth of the Churchill River, across the river from Churchill in northern Manitoba. This was an adventure like no other, a pilgrimage, a rite of passage. My insides were bubbling. I had lists and questions that needed answers. I packed everything I could possibly need for such a journey. But first, time was required with my research mentor, Alison Kirk Montgomery, at her cottage on Lake Huron, a visit with two of my four daughters in Ontario, a return to my childhood community in Fort Francis, Ontario, and the farm on Rainy River, where I did all my imagining as a child. Never had I imagined this adventure. COVID made travel difficult Gas prices were high, $2.19 a litre in Quebec, but I shook that off and continued on my way. I hope I don't look back on that gas price and think, gee, that was a bargain. But who knows? I spent a week with my research mentor. Allison is one of those souls who has incredible wisdom about so many things, one of which is where to find information and how to get at it. She is my dear friend, one of those precious gifts we rarely find in life. I am grateful for every minute I get to spend with her. That is never enough. I gazed out at Lake Huron from her cottage steps. I soaked in the beauty and recharged my battery before hitting the road again. The road is long, a drive of 4,300 kilometers from my home in Nova Scotia to Winnipeg. Lots of time to think. I love the drive through northern Ontario. I've heard people complain about the endless lakes and trees and rocks, but to me the sight is stunning and comforting and familiar, mile after mile of silence. The further north, the fewer cars. I put in some long days behind the wheel, started from my daughter Thea's home near Chesley, Ontario, in southwest Ontario, taking the ferry from Tobermory to South Baymouth, the weather stunning, on to Schreiber in the north where I spent the night. Schreiber to Fort Francis to my birthplace along the mighty Rainy River. I paused here to catch my breath, to rest in the memories of childhood, to visit friends. Then Fort Francis to the Hudson's Bay Company archives in Winnipeg. Most of my mother's family lived in Winnipeg while I was growing up, so we spent a fair bit of time coming to the city for visits on almost every holiday. They were in St. James on Parkview Street and Cavell Drive on Mulvey Avenue and Crescentwood. From 213 Parkview was a quick walk to the King's Theatre where I first saw the sound of music. Wearing my Sunday best, 
A movie with an intermission really did feel like the big times. I later attended the University of Manitoba, so felt relatively at home in the city, but so much had changed in the last 40 years. I spent two weeks at the Manitoba Archives. It was overwhelming at first for an introvert like me, trying to figure out how to use the resources and feeling uncomfortable to ask. The staff expect everyone to be a seasoned user of the archives, and those who don't ask are left to their own devices. I persevered and observed others requesting materials, and before many days had passed, I felt somewhat competent. Then something absolutely took my breath away. I filled out the necessary request for documents and assumed I would be looking at those documents through glass or a photocopy of them. I wasn't sure. A man came along with a trolley and placed the requested documents on the table in front of me. I sat dumbfounded for a bit, not able to believe my eyes. I lifted the first document and written on the floral cover of the book were the words, 1799, William Sinclair, Oxford House Journal. In my hand was the journal in which my great-great-great-great-grandfather recorded the day's events in his handwriting, in his own words, recorded 223 years earlier. Oh my! His handwriting was precise and neat. I held the journal to my chest and hoped by some sort of osmosis the essence of the man would find me. I felt overcome with emotion, closing my eyes and calling on whatever it was I was searching for in that moment to calm me. It was an extraordinary experience. I held a second journal, a journal of occurrences at Wegg's house, August 17, 1795 to June 19, 1796, and a third Hudson's Bay Company Post journal and many more. I read them carefully. Most had been digitized and were available online, so I decided to use my time for those documents that are available in hard copy only. I looked at photos of William's grave at York Factory. I looked at detailed maps drawn by William of the various posts and the waterways providing them access. Some moments I merely sat and absorbed the experience, calling on Nahway to join me in my quest. I stayed at an Airbnb near the Manitoba Archives, and I walked to and from the building on the corner of Vaughan Street and St. Mary's Avenue, the building that protects the evidence of history. My mind often wandered back to those days trying to visualize what I was reading, trying to create an accurate image of the places William wrote about. We had torrential rain one day that soaked me to the bone. I took refuge in the Starline Diner, whose walls were adorned with titanic memorabilia. The food was exceptional, and the proprietor a lovely, friendly man who served me a real vanilla milkshake. I was reluctant to finish my research at the archives, but I had plans to return. The next stop was St. John's Cathedral Cemetery to find Nahaway and Collins Graves. St. John's Cathedral and Cemetery are located where Anderson Avenue meets the Red River. The Earl of Selkirk, Thomas Douglas, chose the site for the church in 1817. Four churches have occupied this site. 
the first was washed away in the flood of 1826. The flood of 1850 seriously weakened the second structure. The third building of stone was erected in 1862, which was reconstructed in 1926 using most of the previous stone. The burial grounds were established in 1812 by the Selkirk settlers. The oldest marked grave is the grave of eight-month-old George, son of George Simpson and Frances Ramsey Simpson. My hometown was renamed for little George's mother, and I am no fan of his father, despite how he receives glowing recognition in our history books. It's a beautiful day, a quiet one. I forget that a city surrounds me. The bugs are buzzing, the sun is warm. I've parked my car and have walked down to the shore of the Red River. The current is obvious and strong and determined. The water's high. The shore is muddy. I've found a tree that has washed up here a long time ago, I suspect. A good place to sit and imagine Nahway gazing out at this water, sitting atop a piece of granite on the river bank. Her hands clasp together as she calls to her ancestors to bring Colin her youngest child back to her. She sat at this riverside for years, from 1824 when she moved to the Red River Colony from Oxford House after the death of her husband and until her death in 1863, waiting and hoping for his return. She was sitting at the river when she came to my cousin Donna Sutherland in a dream, urging Donna to remember her, to remember Nahuay. She waited at this riverbank, possibly right here where I am sitting, her eyes closed, willing her child's return. She had no say, no voice to prevent him from being taken from her when he was only seven years old, her fair-haired child with blue eyes. Maybe if he had looked more like her and less like his father, she, she could have held him, her arms enough to keep him safe. Maybe those with the power wouldn't have been interested in taking him. She would go to her grave not knowing what became of Colin, probably at times imagining the worst. I put myself in her shoes, and my entire body aches. The waters of the Red River eventually find their way to Hudson Bay, as do the waters of the Rainy River. I played along the shore of the Rainy River as a child. Squishing my bare toes in the mud, the water cold and bearing the smell of the earth. There's no smell quite like it. It was my shore of the Rainy River where Colin Robertson and his men settled for the night on their way from Montreal to the Red River Colony on July 6th and 1815. The, coincident, the coincidence of this seems something more, only to me I realize. That farm is sacred to me even though I haven't lived there for 48 years. I never wanted to leave it, and if things had turned out as I had wanted them to, I would live there still. River water acts as a sedative, its changing nature, its movement, like being rocked to sleep. The river reminds us that life stops for no one. It, it simply flows on. I've wandered up from the bank of the Red River to the cemetery of St. John's Cathedral. The grave of Nahue is steps away from the cathedral. She lies beneath pink granite, sitting atop two tiers of limestone, its shape formed to the likeness of the roof of Seven Oaks, the home of her daughter Mary and son-in-law John Inkster, 
where Nahoy spent her last days and where Colin lived out his life after his return. I lie my hand on the granite and I thought it would be warm on this very warm day, but it is cool to the touch. I place my cheek against it. A, a calm has washed over me. I feel almost sleepy, certainly quiet. Let me read the words I, I found here. The east and west ends of the granite bear the name Sinkler in, in bold letters. On the north surface, it says, Sacred to the memory of my mother, Margaret Nahoy Sinkler, this last token of love and affection is erected by her wandering boy, Colin, 1897. Eyes of my childhood days shall meet me, lips of mother's love shall greet me on the day I follow. Oh, what hosts of memories rise, sadness dims an old man's eyes. Colin wrote that poem. On the south face of the granite, it says, Captain Colin Robertson Sinkler, born at Oxford House, Kewayton, August 12th, 1816, died July 22nd, 1901. He placed no details of his mother's birth or the date of her death on the stone in memory of her, and I'm guessing he didn't have that information. Next to this monument are the graves of Phoebe Sinkler and Thomas Bunn. Phoebe was Nahui and William's first child. The stone reads, This stone is the faint but only memorial which can be offered by their grateful children. I hate to leave this place. It's it's not that I feel Nahoe is here, but to see her name carved in stone means so much. But I leave I must. Next stop, Seven Oaks. Less than two kilometers from St. John's Cemetery is the Seven Oaks Museum. It was built in 1851 to 1853 by John Inkster built of oak logs on a stone foundation, a home for he and his wife Mary. John Inkster was a stonemason and his foundation was unique, the cut and weight of the stone requiring no mortar. The home faces the Red River with full-width veranda along the front and back of the home. Buffalo hair and fur insulation was used. Inkster floated logs down the Assiniboine River from Bay St. Paul in 1851 to begin construction, Logs were hewn to 17.8 centimeters square, or 7 inches. The worst flood in the area's history came in 1852 with 1 1.2 meters, or almost 4 feet of water, covering the property. Mary and John lived in a tent on the unfinished second floor while the children and livestock were sent to Lilyfield near what is now Stonewall. The home was completed in 1853. John Inkster was a Métis leader who married Mary Sinkler in 1826, the 22-year-old daughter of Nahue and William Sinkler. Mary was born and raised at Oxford House. John and Mary had 11 children. Mary, or Marek, as she was called, was born in 1832. She never married and lived in the house until her death in 1912. Merrick gifted the house and property to the city of Winnipeg in her will in 1912. Mr. Prins played a crucial role in restoring the home at Seven Oaks to a museum, opened to the public in 1958. 
It is the oldest home in Winnipeg still standing on its original foundation. The building was added to the City of Winnipeg's historic buildings in 1997 and designated a Manitoba Provincial Heritage Site in 2017. Mary's son, Colin Inkster, was a member of Manitoba's first legislature in 1871 and its speaker in 1876. He was a founder of the Winnipeg Board of Trade in 1873 and a founder of the Manitoba Historical Society in 1879. He was High Sheriff of Manitoba from 1876 to 1927. He and his wife, Ann Tate, had five children. He was a historian and provided much information as to the life of his mother and his grandmother. I'm sitting on a bench in front of Seven Oaks Museum. A veranda covers the front. I always wanted a house with a veranda as a child, a place to play and imagine on rainy days. Six windows stretch across the front of the house toward the Red River. An old water pump sits in the yard, its handles broken. My neighbor on the farm next to mine had a pump just like this one. Annie pumped the arm of it and water magically appeared, pulled from the earth below. It was magic of the highest order to a four-year-old. A Red River cart sits in, a, it's in an enclosure to protect it from the weather. Two wheels atop, which sat a small framed-in platform. It's a very simple structure, no doubt a hard-working piece of equipment. The trees are tall and stately. There are no longer seven oaks, I've, I'm counting them, that, that gave the property its name. It is quiet here, peaceful. I close my eyes and call on Nahue to join me. I'm not sure. I feel her nearby. I'll wait. I opened the front door to the house and a young man enjoying his lunch outdoors scrambled to follow me and introduced himself as the guide for my day's adventure. I had visited Seven Oaks before. In 2017, a family reunion gathered here to honor first cousins of the Sutherland family and, and to have Donna Sutherland, my second cousin, join us to talk about the history she unearthed in researching Nahue for her book, A Distant Voice. Donna couldn't join us due to her failing health and cancer claimed her life a few weeks later. I so wanted to speak to her and celebrate her achievement and to congratulate her on the commitment to history and the joy and in enlightenment it brought us all. I hope she knows how grateful we all are for her. The young man toured me around and seemed intent on telling me that John Inkster and Mary Sinclair were affluent and carried some clout in the community. I couldn't imagine, after everything I read in research, that Mary would have felt in any way that being affluent was an important consideration of her life story. She was Métis. She was born and raised at Oxford House in the wilderness of northern Manitoba. Her mother had been raised a Cree child, a home guard Cree, the last of her family to be called such. Mary was devoted to her mother, the youngest girl of Nahue's children. She witnessed the grief of her mother having her youngest child taken from her and sent away, never to see him again in her life. Thankfully, Mary was reunited with Colin and they spent 10 years together before her death in 1892. 
The home is impressive. I'm, I'm glad I came. A stool supported by caribou feet is the first article to greet me. A photograph of John Inkster in which he looks almost giddy as if he was quite delighted that I am here to see the remains of he and Mary's home. Again, the tour guide points out artifacts that indicated Mary and John's wealth. I frown at him. I found Colin's bedroom most interesting of all the rooms. There hangs a hammock like one found in the ships of that era. Colin spent so much of his life at sea that he couldn't settle into a bed and preferred to sleep in a hammock. The tour guide tells me about the Seven Oaks Massacre in which the Red River settlers were murdered by the Métis. I had just come from reading Colin Robertson's journal and his account of that same battle, and I reminded the tour guide that retelling history bears a significant responsibility, especially when given the privilege of sharing the historical accounts with visitors to this museum. Next, I'm going to hop on the Via Rail train to Churchill. I hope you'll join me. Hi, hi. That is thank you in Cree. Hi, hi for listening. Bye for now.